Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 839. We're going to read verses 35 through 41 of Mark chapter 4. It's a passage that if you grew up going to Sunday school, you'll be very familiar with. It's a passage that even if you're brand new to the church, you you may have uh, well heard of. It's a passage that a a number of our songs drew their uh, lines and lyrics from even this morning. So let's give our attention to this section of God's Word. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come now once more and be our teacher, that as we look at these words, as we reflect on them, as we see what you have written for us, we would find that they are no longer just words on a page, but a moving, living, breathing reality in our hearts and in our souls. Come, Holy Spirit. You live within the hearts of your children. Be stirred up to teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. spend a few moments looking at the details of the story and then note a couple of lessons that we can learn from the end of it. It strikes me in this passage that, again, is so familiar to many of us that the evening started normally enough. There wasn't great drama to begin with. We know that earlier that day, Jesus had gone down to the Sea of Galilee and he had stretched and he had felt the sun on his eyelids and the breeze on his neck and he had started to teach the people. Now, being the greatest preacher that ever lived, what then happened was that a crowd gathered. And this was something of an occupational hazard for Jesus. Whenever he preaches, crowds gather. Sometimes to fall down and adore him and worship. Sometimes to rise up and demand that he be crucified. But there's never an apathetic response. No one is ever blasé. No one is ever disinterested to the teaching of Jesus. Whenever he preaches, a crowd gathers either to worship or to persecute him. And I would suggest that that should be our own response as well. If we are blasé about Jesus as we interact with him in the scriptures, it is probably because we're not really wrestling with what it is he is saying to us. Worship or persecution. I'm going to try push you this way, of course, in our time this morning. But this crowd is is gathering around Jesus. A fisherman has looked up from mending his nets. He's stopped by to listen to Jesus and and found that he he just can't leave. A woman walking home carrying 
bread from the stall, stops to listen and, and hears things that she's never heard before. Children start to appear, some sitting on laps, some playing in the dirt, some standing around at the feet of the preacher. And people just keep on appearing. This crowd just keeps on growing. At first, Jesus just speaks up so that those at the back might be able to hear him. But soon, the crowd starts pressing in on him. The front row is now sitting on his sandals and voices in the crowd complain as they are elbowed in the ribs by those who are standing nearby. And it soon becomes clear that they don't have enough space for all these people. And so the disciples get together and they start to brainstorm. What should we do about this situation? Perhaps we should put chairs out in the aisles, one suggests. Perhaps we should live stream this service into an overflow room. And then one of them, we don't know which one, has this great idea. I love this. Verse 1 of, Matthew, of Mark chapter 4. Jesus got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Talk about creating space in order to reach new people. love this. There's such a crowd that they need to find more room. And so Jesus goes out into the boat and they just push out a little distance from shore so that people can fill in all the land that's there. And then Jesus speaks and his voice is carried over the calm waters and everyone is able to have a seat. With his pulpit now bobbing up and down in the water, Jesus picks up from where he was teaching and carries on. Now that we arrive at verse 35 of our text, read with me. When evening had come... Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. You can imagine that the sun is beginning to set behind Jesus and those who've been listening are beginning to squint and Jesus realizes that it's, it's about time for everyone to get on home. And so he wraps up his sermon and he bids them all a fond farewell. And as the crowd is beginning to dissipate, he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, one more thing that we need to do today. Let's, let's go on across to the other side. And I love what Jesus is doing here. Why does he want to go on over to the other side? Because having taught the 99 on the shore, he's now going after the one who lives on the other side. He has a divine appointment to keep with a man who is wild and troubled and has a legion of demons within him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Just flick ahead one, uh, one, one verse from where we finish reading. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus has decided that today, this day, is going to be the day of the man who lives on the other side's salvation. And so he models to us, he exemplifies to us what he is prepared to do, how far he is prepared to go out of his way, how far he is prepared to inconvenience himself in order that he meet, might reach just one soul with the gospel. Having taught the 99, he moves on to the one. And so, verse 36, look down. At leaving the crowd, they took him, the disciples took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. So without hesitation, the disciples kick into gear. They ready the boat and they set their sails and they set out just as they have done a thousand times before. Understand just how normal this all is. Jesus has been teaching, now they're sailing. It's like going to work and jumping in your car to come home. 
This is everyday routine and everyday activity. Uh, normal, run of the day, uh, run of the mill, ordinary. And at this point, it's at this point, verse 37, that fear uh, arrives. And isn't it so often the case that, that that's how it works? Fear arrives in a normal, ordinary moment. You remember on 9-11, you were, you were eating your breakfast, and then you saw planes crashing into buildings. You jump in your car, and suddenly there's a wreck. You go for a, a routine physical, and you get that diagnosis. You're falling asleep in your bed at night, and you get that phone call. And suddenly the the normal, the routine, the ordinary is shattered and you find yourself heartbroken and and fearful and appalled. Fear arises amidst the ordinary. For the disciples, as we said, it was a storm. Look at verse 37. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, the geography of the region that this all takes place is, is fascinating. The, the Sea of Galilee itself is some 700 feet below sea level. It's part of that geologic depression that leads down to the, great, down to the Dead Sea and then onward into Africa as the Great Rift Valley. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is also surrounded by hills, and so it's very common for winds to blow across the land and then intensify over the Sea of Galilee and then drop down into these furious storms over the water itself. And this still happens to this day. And what still happens on this day happened on this day here in Mark chapter 4. A great windstorm arose, a furious squall hits, and the disciples are terrified. Now we know that many of them had made their living as fishermen, as sailors. They'd been out on the water, it was normal to them, and yet they'd never seen anything quite like this. First of all, we know that it was evening, so it's getting dark, or maybe by this point, dark, barely able to see in front of them. Then the wind begins to pick up, and they feel it whipping in to their faces and their cheeks, bringing spray from the water that is now rising into waves that are even coming over into the boat itself, and they can feel that the boat is getting heavier as it fills with water from these waves. I don't know if you've ever been out in uh, the sea during a storm. I remember one time when I was going to visit my uncle who lives in Orkney, which is a wee island off the way north coast of Scotland. To get there, you have to drive to the northernmost point of Scotland and then take a ferry uh, to the Isle of Orkney. And one time when we were doing this, this great storm came upon us. And the waves were rising and falling and the boat was rising and falling and I and I think everybody else in there was sick and it was just this ferocious scene to see the power of the ocean in a storm. And this was me in a steel ship designed for, you know, thousands of people. Here the disciples find themselves in a boat that's probably not even designed for as many, of, uh, uh, for as, many as there are uh, of them. And so fear kicks in, and in their fear, as so often happens, verse 38, the disciples forget. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? 
I wonder if there's ever been a question that was so understandable and yet so unfair. So understandable and yet so unfair. Does Jesus care? Let's consider the context even just of Mark itself. In chapter 1 he has cast out demons and healed many and even cleansed a leper. In chapter 2 he has gone on to heal the paralytic and called disciples to himself. In chapter 3 he's restored the man with the withered hand and he's spent time with the crowds. Now in chapter 4 he's been teaching the 99 and he's on his way to the one. Why does he do any of that? Because he cares. We could ask of the broader context, why has he done any of that and why is he even in a boat on that evening? Because he left the glories of heaven to be born in a low condition, to be made under the law that he might endure all the miseries of this life and die a cursed death on the cross, uh, taking the wrath of God into his own body that we might find forgiveness. How do you ask that guy if he cares? Of course he cares. Of course, he cares. This explains the mild rebuke he gives them in verse 40. Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Fear has made them forget how beloved they are to the very one they're questioning. Fear has made them forget how beloved they are to the very one they're questioning. Fear arrives amidst the normal, amidst the ordinary. For the disciples, it was a storm. But I wonder what it is for us. I wonder what it is for you. What is it that you fear? Is it rejection? Being seen as unattractive to others or being lonely either in singleness or in marriage? Is it lacking a purpose, being seen as incompetent, being seen as average? Do you fear failure, disappointing someone or or losing your reputation? Do you fear that sense of of not having stability or security, not having enough money or not having what it takes? Do you fear pain, suffering, cancer? Do you fear death, your own, your spouses, your children's? Do you fear the future, the unknown, the unknowable? What is it that you fear? And when you find yourself caught up in this moment, do you find yourself just like the disciples, that your fear makes you forget? That you ask, how could God let this happen to me? Why is my life working out in this way? Does your fear make you forget how beloved you are to the very one that you question? This passage gives us such an interesting picture of of life happening normally enough and then fear arrives. For the disciples, it was a storm. For us, it's a variety of things. And in the midst of it all, we find ourselves doubting God's love for us. So what do we do in these situations? I said we'd look at two points and let's look at them very briefly together. The first thing that we need to see when we're in the midst of these fearful situations is this. That Jesus is the one who controls the storm. Jesus is the one who controls the storm. Your God is a God of power. Jesus controls the storm. Now, I want to be very careful to make clear what, what I didn't just say. I didn't just say Jesus is the one who calms the storm. 
Jesus is the one who controls the storm. I didn't just say Jesus is the one who calms the storm. And that's often how this passage is taught. You know, Jesus calmed the storm on the lake. And if you have faith, he'll calm the storms in your life too. What's the problem with that? He doesn't always calm the storm. And so we visit with our partners in Cambodia and a mother who tells us that she had six children and five of them died. And we visit with our partners in Kenya and they tell us about wee girls who've been ripped from their community and forced into the sex trade. And we visit with ourselves here at McLean and hear about how cancer has ravaged many of our members from young to old to middle age. Sometimes the storm is not at Camden, the Western Church, the American Church, McLean, we are foolish and unbiblical to expect a life that's free from suffering. To expect a life that is always calm. The Bible confounds our expectations and instead offers us an all-powerful God who's enough even in the midst of our suffering. And so that's our, our first point. Not that Jesus calms the storm, but that Jesus controls the storm. Let's look at this at a little more quickly. First of all, he controls it because he's the one who gets the disciples into it. You see that? How is it the disciples find themselves in this situation? It's not because of their disobedience. It's not because of their lack of faith. It's because Jesus says to them, hey, let's go over to the other side. If Jesus doesn't say this, they've got their feet up eating fish on the shore right now. Jesus is the one who leads them into this moment. Obviously, he is not in the least bit interested about making us feel secure and easy. He has greater things in mind. Secondly, Jesus is the one who controls the storm because not only does he get them into it, but he also gets them out of it. How do they get out of the storm? Is it their obedience? Is it their faith? No, Jesus gets them out of it. Let's read verse 39 together. Jesus awoke And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus has been napping, and he comes to, and I love what he doesn't do. What does he not do here? He doesn't pray. He doesn't pray, Father, stop this. Why? He does not need to invoke a higher power, because he is the higher power. And so he turns to the wind and to the waves. And he says, peace, be still. Good translation of this concept would be a good Scottish word. Your, your Scottish education continues. Right? And it's the Scottish word, weeshed. It's a great word. It's a word that sort of means, um, it's a demand for silence that you'd use in an affectionate way. So it's a demand for silence that, for example, you'd use with your kids. You know, weeshed now and eat your broccoli. Right? You know, we now in a way do what I told you. Right? I'm actually going to write to the ESV and see if we can get that included. <laughs> Here's the point though. Jesus turns to this raging storm and with a word silences it. Like a parent might issue a word to a child. Jesus issues a word to the storm. And the storm obeys more readily than the child. Weesh now, he says. Immediately, there's a great calm. The wind, which has been whipping into their faces, just 
stops and the waves that have been rocking their boat up and down just go calm. It's so smooth that even the water that has been pouring into their boat now looks like glass around their ankles. And they scoop it out amidst the calm. The word of Christ leading them out of the storm. He is in control of the storm. The disciples' response to me is is so fascinating. We've had this great wind in verse 37, and this great wind has become a great calm in verse 39, which leads them, verse 41, into great fear. Look at it. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. In light of what he has just done, they, they were afraid for their lives a moment ago. And now they are more afraid because of what they have seen Jesus do. But why? One preacher puts it this way. He says, Jesus came just as he was, verse 36. And now they're finding out just who he is. He came just as he was and they're finding out just who he is. Jesus is able to sleep in the storm because he has perfect control over every aspect of it. Jesus is in control of the storm. He is a God of power. And so for us in our lives, he's in control of our storms as well. We are never the victim of circumstance, never tossed and buffeted around by the latest wave to hit. No, we're in the eye of a different storm. (laughs) We're in the eye of the storm that is God who is working in our lives in the very moment with greater goals in mind. When we find ourselves in fear, we need to remember the power of God. Now, you might say, okay, I'm not sure that makes me feel any better. Because now, like the disciples, I'm just more afraid of God. I still don't have any hope for my soul in this. Which takes us to the second thing I want us to see. Not only is God in control of the storm, not only is he a God of power, but Jesus is also with you in the boat. He's a God of love. Jesus is also with you in the boat. He's a God of love. Where is Jesus as all this unfolds? Is he separate from their problems? Is he watching from afar? Is he somehow distant uh, to this entire scene? No, he is right there with them. He's walking in their shoes and he's sailing in their sandals. He is going through every single moment of this with them. Christianity is the only faith where this transcendent God of power will also be that sort of intimate and imminent God of love. The only faith where power and love will meet for you so personally. And we need to know that Jesus is with us when fear hits. And I want you to understand this notion isn't just some wishful thinking or some sort of emotional mumbo-jumbo. Look, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, so I guess he's with you too sort of allegorical reading of the text. No, this is a a picture, it's an illustration of a doctrine that we know to be true called our our, our union with Christ. That those who have a personal relationship with Jesus are united to him. There's a sense in which we could say that the two have become one, that there's no place you can go without Christ. 
And there is no place you will ever go where you will not be found in Christ. Paul puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying, it's so united am I to him that I can say there's a sense in which I was crucified with him. That as he died upon the cross, so my sin was paid for. And so united am I to Christ that there's a sense in which we could say, I am raised with him. Uh, The new life that he has is, is my life as well. There is no time, no how, no way when the Christian can ever be found separate from him. What will separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. And so Jesus says, more clearly, in Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it's his presence with us, it's our union with him that makes all the difference to us. Because he's not just a distant God of power. He's an intimate God of love. 1 John 4, 18 tells us a perfect love casts out fear. If you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you know that you have not loved perfectly. But you know that you have been loved perfectly. That's the essence of the gospel. That his kindness is not distance, but is near and dear Even within us. Why should you not fear? Because the one who controls the storm is with you in the boat. Summary as we close. Life's happening normally enough and then suddenly fear arises. For the disciples it was a storm. For us it's a variety of things. And often when this happens we're we're tempted to question the love of God. When we find ourselves there we need to remember that Jesus controls the storm. He's the God of power. And we need to remember that Jesus is, is with you in the boat. He's the God of love as well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is both simple and profound. Um, An amazing story that on face value any of us are able to see and and grapple with and understand. And, And yet one that points us towards some deep and meaningful truths that our souls need. Father, there are, there are many here this morning who, who are finding today the journey of faith difficult, who are questioning whether they will make it, who are considering whether it's worth it. Lord, we pray that you would minister to their fears and ours, that you would minister to our hearts, that we would see you as the God of, of power and the God of love the God of control and the God who's with us. Lord, I pray that this text will be an encouragement to our souls and that you would give us the grace to believe in a way that moves us from mere intellectual understanding to spiritual transformation and change and being able to add our own amen to the things that we have read in your word. And we pray it all in Jesus' perfect and matchless name. Amen.